Our passage today will be on the screen. We'll be reading from John chapter 13, 31 through 38. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Father, many of us have been walking into this story of John for many months. Many of, us, many of us know that we're supposed to be a loving people. This is what we're supposed to be as a church. And yet, just as that passage ended where Peter, Jesus predicts, is going to deny him, we know that we struggle in this area of love. Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit now, put a bright light on this portion of the story that John gave us that really happened in an upper room right after Jesus had this betrayal of Judas, where Judas left the room, and now Jesus would talk more tenderly to his close friends. Lord, please talk tenderly to our hearts today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, with your Bibles open, please be seated. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name's Howard, and I'm one of the pastors here today. I love words. I wonder, have you ever noticed that if you put the word out before a word, it changes the word? I know when I was in the military, you didn't want to be outgunned. That means somebody else has more ammo than you. I love in the hospital when I visit with people and they say, grandma's lived to be 100. I wonder if anybody else can outlive grandma. That's pretty amazing. The joke that never gets old has to do with running, and as old as I get, I still chuckle at it, because when you think of running, but then you put the word out in front of it, have you ever heard the old joke, if you meet a bear, you know, like this, you've got this experience, hey, Tom, I just realized that I don't need to outrun the bear, I only need to outrun you. I have heard this joke since I was a kid. And I still love this because all of us, it just makes us laugh to think, you know, nobody wants to meet this bear. But when we put the word out in front of the word love, 
we get to the heart of what we're hearing here. To outlove another is to exceed them in something, to exceed love. Now, when I bring up love, some of you may automatically say, love, everybody talks about love. Love's universal. Everyone does it, everybody wants it. Kind of boring. I mean, we know we should love. Let's go home. My burden is not to talk at all today about love. My burden is to lift up what Jesus calls a new commandment. Jesus will not actually command his friends or us today to love. He will tell you to outlove one another. And when we watch Jesus outlove us, we will be ready to outlove one another. So the title today is definitely not about love Jesus, love others. It's this Jesus can outlove you. That's really good news. And we're going to see that Jesus outloves you in three ways. He outloves you by bringing you a candescence. What's that? Well, you all know what an incandescent light is. It brings brightness. Candescence is a glowing brightness. We're going to look at that with the idea of glory. Secondly, he outloves you by giving you a commandment. And lastly, he outloves you by making a claim. So let's step into this amazing upper room and see how, first of all, Jesus outloves even you with bright candescence. Daryl finished last week with the very dark words, and it was night. There is no brightness when it turns into night. Judas, who looked like a trustworthy friend, totally a disciple following Jesus, he slithers out into the night. He is betraying Jesus Christ. The darkness descends. I think we need to imagine being in that room with the friends. Uh, Often in that culture, when it got dark, they would have a lamp. Maybe a candle was burning, but it's dark. But have you ever noticed how just one positive person, Jesus Christ, can lift the dark mood out of a room? Look at verse 31. When he, that's Judas, had gone out... Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. There's this idea of candescence. And God is glorified in him. Jesus lifts this dark mood out of the room and reveals bright, candescent glory. Bright light sent into the surroundings. Well, how does glory, this very amazing concept we see in Scripture, relate to this whole idea of Jesus outloving you. Glory, remember, is a special word used in Scripture about how God displays his essence, his identity. It's how God shines out and reveals his wonder. Remember, it doesn't say in the Bible that God is loving. I mean, of course he is. The Bible says that God is love. 
Drill as deep as you can into the heart of God, and you will continually find love. This is his very essence. And love, just like candescence, is something that pushes out. This is why God the Father sends the Son. Look at verse 32. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. We need to see that an amazing display of love is going to happen. Before we talk about outloving others, we must begin with the outloving glory of God. Love is by nature diffusive, it needs to be shared. It needs to be spread out. It needs to be gifted. Thomas Aquinas wrote, love not only loves the being of another, but their well-being. Well, where will this loving glory be revealed? Look at verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You'll seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you can't come. When he turns to his friends in that room and he calls them little children, this may have been not only the most intense, but the most intimate moment he had with his friends. Little children. It's family language. How would you feel if you were a little child and you were going to be left behind? Incredibly vulnerable. His friends felt like little children, vulnerable, and he's addressing them. You know, John, who wrote this biography, some of you that are Christians know that he would write 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He would write more. He would give the last book of the Bible, Revelation. John must have been so touched by this one-time usage of Jesus, little children, because just in his first letter alone, he will address disciples as little children. We want to go out there and be so loving, but we're very vulnerable. We need to see the glory of God. They had been with him for a couple of years, but they just didn't get the big picture yet. They didn't understand that he's leaving. I want you to think of this fork in the road. They're following him. They're disciples. They're learning his way, and he's saying, I'm going to take a road that you cannot take. I'm going to take a road where with no holds barred love of the Father, he is giving the very lifeblood of me to those that are sinners. Verse 36, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you can't follow me, but you'll follow afterward. See, we take a road to the cross. Think that's where the glory, that's where the candescence was just going to show the love of God Yes, it would be in the cross. Jesus is saying, oh, the glory is coming. The brightness is that I'm going to leave you to love you to death. Secondly, Jesus outloves us, not just with this candescence, this beautiful picture of the love of God. He outloves you with a new commandment. A new commandment. You should circle that in your Bible. New. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I've loved you. You're to love one another. Love one another. What unique Greek word did he use? It was the word agape. 
Agape means it's not just an attitude. Oh, I love everybody. It's an attitude that takes action to advantage you at my disadvantage. Jesus does not give a command right now to love the whole world. It's a little bit harder. He says, love one another. Imagine being up in that room, spending the last three years with a bunch of guys. He's saying, you got to love the guy next to you. I wonder, even as you sit in here, some of you are with your spouses. Some of you have visited, are visiting today. Some of you are getting to know people. This is the group that you are to love. Not some vague concept of love the planet, love everyone. Not at all. It's the person near you in need. And you say, well, this person around me at work is so difficult. That person at work might be thinking the same thing about you. Wait a minute, that person is so different from me, especially their beliefs. The way they think is crazy. Love one another. And some of you may not like commandments. But commandments are really good. Why? A commandment promotes and protects your very life. Commandments are part of the junctures of life where relationships matter most. Think about this. Last week, one of my smoke detectors started to make a command. It's beeping away, and I could just sit there and go, that stupid smoke detector. But it dawned on me, I should probably think, is there smoke? The command is not a bad thing. The command is to say, look around, because this thing can sense smoke. If there's smoke, there is fire. If there's fire, you may want to listen to the command and get out and stay alive. A commandment is not a condition of a relationship. A command is an expression of life in that relationship that you actually live out. And some of you are going, Howard, let's get back to this. Hold up. It, this is a new commandment? New? It's not new. The whole Bible's about love. It's not new in content. Leviticus 19.18, an Old Testament book, said this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So some of you are saying, well, how could love one another be a new commandment? I mean, Jesus, it's just a commandment. It's like it's the same commandment, right? Well, Jesus describes this commandment with an adjective, the adjective new. And if you lived in that culture, you could use two different words for the word new. The first one is neos. This means it's new in reference to time. New, it's recent, it's new. But another word that Jesus uses is the word kainos. It means it's new in reference to quality. It's different in quality from all the rest. For example, if I get a new pair of shoes on Tuesday, you might say, well, you got new shoes on Tuesday. That's naos. He did not use that word. But if I told you, you know, I went in and I usually get a military discount and the people that own the shop said, the next guy that walks in here with a military discount, we're going to give shoes for the rest of his life. Now, by the way, that didn't happen to me. But if it did, 
that would be a qualitative newness. Jesus was teaching one day and he's like, you know what? You don't put, you have to put new wine into new wineskins. He used both words. New wine that's just being created is new in recent time. But the wineskins, if they're old, if they don't have the different quality, if they can't stretch and let this kingdom come in, they're going to burst. He uses this second word. It's so unique. The new commandment is not to love one another now in time. That would be great. The new commandment is to love one another just as I have loved you. It's a qualitative difference. Not a difference in content, but a difference in extent. What do I mean? He says, just as I've loved you. Replicate, imitate my love to the exact extent that I have loved you. Now, if you were John and these 11 guys in this upper room, you could look any direction and realize, wow, I mean, they could look back at his arrival. God becomes human from the heights of heaven. He enters the darkness. We would say the prince leaves the palace for a prostitute. He stoops to save us in the scandal of his birth. You know, he grew up, you know, his mom, I don't looked illegitimate. He entered into our world willing to love us in this way. If you look in the room, you see a bunch of clean feet because laying there on the floor is when he got down and he wiped their dirt onto himself. What kind of love is this? The king of the cosmos who fashioned the comets is scrubbing the scum off of the dirtiest part of his friends? See, he had signs of concrete, tangible service in that upper room. He would rather that they have a clean reputation in that room, and he has the dirt on him. And we know if you look ahead at the extent of his love, he would be executed on the cross and lay down his life for those brothers. He would rather take the death penalty so that they would get a life reward. He lays down his life so others can get up. So this new commandment in quality has a very noticeable criterion. What's a criterion? A criterion is the single standard in terms of which something can be judged. Look at this picture of a zebra and a horse. Let's say someone walks up and says, I wonder if they're both horses. Well, you could point to, you know, parts of the zebra's body because zebras and horses do have some mild differences. You could look at their shoulders. You could look at the dip of their back. But the singular criterion we all know from even young children is that a zebra has stripes. A horse does not. Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love of this quality, this extent. If you're replicating, copying, imitating the extent of my love, not for the world, for one another. This criterion is a dead giveaway. It's conspicuous. Some of you may be new to discipleship, new to learning the Jesus way. 
This is the definition of discipleship. Drill a hole into the heart of God, you will find love. Drill a hole into the heart of discipleship, you will find love. It's the one non-negotiable in your learning relationship with Jesus. It's the defining, distinguishing characteristic. It's the spotlight on the stage of discipleship. It's the one identifier. Notice Jesus did not say, even though these are good things, it'd be good for you to know all the right doctrine. Oh, it's very good to know the right doctrine. That is not the distinguishing characteristic. Did you know that if Jesus comes back in three hours and someone in this room has not learned some doctrine, his coming back is going to be about the love of Jesus and your transfer of trust to say, God loved me in Christ. You may not know about things like justification, sanctification, ecclesiology. You may never know those things. That is not the defining, distinguishing characteristic of what it means to be a learner of Jesus Christ. And it's not to love the world. It's to love in a qualitatively different way than anybody loves. It's to love others to death. Oh, this is convicting. I love the line in Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, the course of love never did run smooth. Those 24 feet that Jesus washed that night would all run from him and walk over his love. One dude just hightailed it out of there in the dark, and he's setting up Jesus getting set up to go to the cross. Love is not convenient. I think parenting, by the way, might be one of the most painful types of love on the planet, or being married to difficult people like me. Moms, your kids want your attention. When you listen to their fears, their joys, their angers, their hurts, or if you're a friend of someone and you just check on them and listen to the unexceptional moments of their day, you can make an unexceptional moment exceptional just by listening, but you're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to say to somebody in your life, rather than your own priority for the moment, you count for something because you count to someone. You count to me, and I, you count to me because I love you. And, I, and the Lord considers me worthy, so I want to give you love. Love's painful. It's particular. You need to give it in a pattern way. It will hurt when you help others. It'll take your money away. It'll take your energy away. It will take your time away. It's not a gushy feeling. It's a decisive action that obeys and expresses your vital union with God in Christ. You say, whoa, do I have to love that person? That person. Do I have to love you? Do I have to love you in that way? I was just thinking this week about my struggle personally with love. And I have a confession to make. Always in, the, in my mind, I had this unfinished to-do list and always a number of low-level crises that need my attention. So when one of you or somebody at work or my spouse or my... When you want my love, I get a little irritated because I'm thinking, do you not understand that I have this to-do list and these low-level crises? Like, how dare you infringe upon my life? 
Don't you know that I have needs pressing against me? I have notifications on my phone crying for my attention. You want me to give you attention? You want me to be emotionally available to you? Jesus, listen, great, great story from John. You can pull this off, Jesus. You can even pull off the quality, the extent of love, but I can't. I just can't change my priorities, Jesus. And I hear Jesus whisper, Howard, the servant is not greater than the master. Love as I have loved you. Love's going to have to say to others, you are the son, and I orbit around your priorities, your needs. It is not, I am the son, and you orbit around me. What a different quality. You, when you love someone, you say, you are a self worth my attention because I was a self who God gave his only son to save. God gifted me with worth. It's eternal. It was undeserved worth he's gifted me, and I can now, in his strength, promote and attend to you. I want to grow fruit on your tree. It's so good you exist. It's so good you're alive in the world. And it's good for me to love you even when you're unlovable. Francis Schaeffer and his wife Edith are some heroes to me, partly because he was a Presbyterian minister. He went in the 1930s and 40s to be a hardcore Presbyterian. He wanted the Bible to be right, and he separated himself with a group of Presbyterians. But after a while, he looked at them all, and he looked at himself, and he had a crisis of faith. He noticed that everybody had everything right, but they weren't loving each other especially when they saw things differently. And he told his wife, I don't know if I want to be a Christian anymore because we say we have the truth, but we're not even living out the only distinguishable characteristic of what it means to be a disciple. And his wife was a good wife, loved him, let him for three months. Just He'd walk in the barn and he'd argue with God and he'd think of his life. And he finally wrote a book called The Mark of a Christian, not The Marks of a Christian, He wrote it in 1970 when I was born, and I'm glad he wrote the book. He thought about the gospel, and he said, there's two things if we started to do because we are Christians that could change how beautiful Christianity really comes across, and it starts with himself. But he says, let's start saying these words, I'm sorry. By the way, if you're married, it's it's still hard for me to screw up and say to my wife, I'm sorry. It's like, I, it's like it gets stuck in my throat. Like I feel like I'm going to do it, but once I go, oh, it gets stuck right here. But he said, if we say we are sorry, and then here's the second thing you need to say, please forgive me. And if you're the one that's been hurt, he said, you need to actually say, I forgive you. This is the distinguishable mark of a Christian, and it's conspicuous. It's as conspicuous in your life as a zebra is different than a horse. And if you forgive someone, you need to let it go. A lot of you in here have someone in your life 
And you're like, I love them, but you have not let go when they have hurt you. You have not let it go. Loving someone to death means you absorb it and you let it go. Maybe today you can let something go and start looking a little more like a zebra. Start looking like a follower of Jesus Christ who forgave his enemies. Let's look at one of them. (laughs) Peter, in this last point, Jesus outloves you with a come true claim. Jesus was God. He can predict the future. A claim is an assertion that's either true or false since it has to be supported by evidence. Peter's going to make one. Like a lot of us will saying, I'm going to go out and love everybody. I'm going to love like Jesus. Peter starts making a claim, but Jesus comes in and makes a true claim. Jesus is, I mean, Peter is experiencing spiritual disequilibrium. I mean, Judas slips out the side. He's in this upper room. To steady himself, he's going to ask Jesus a question and make a claim. Look at verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Peter in that vulnerability makes that claim, but it's prideful and it's naive. He is lacking self-awareness. Today, the secular world doesn't believe in sin, and they love to label things cognitive biases. Peter's having a classic cognitive bias. It's our propensity to self-deception. I don't know if you've heard about this one. It's called hyperbolic discounting. We all do it. James K.A. Smith, philosopher, says, hyperbolic discounting is a bias in psychology that leads you to imagine that ourself in the future will be very different than ourself in the past, despite all the evidence to the contrary. The example of this would be, I know at work often, I'll say to people, we're going to be doing a special celebration next week. Do you want chocolate or do you want fruit? And inevitably, everybody's like, I'd like fruit, I'd like fruit. But I always tell one of my secretaries, get chocolate and fruit. When everybody shows up, guess what they all eat? The chocolate. See, they, they want to say that in the future, I'm going to take care of my body, especially a bunch of nurses, but you put the chocolate there, they inevitably go for the chocolate. Hyperbolic discounting, it's out there. Jesus hears Peter, who says, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And he goes, will you? Really? Is your good as word as your will, Peter? What a claim. Jesus says, mine is. Jesus then makes a claim predicting what will really come true. And look at verse 38. Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Denial. I mean, Jesus is like, I'm going to lay down my life for you. You talk about love. I'll be the poster child. I'm the leader of this group. I love. Jesus says, Peter, slow down. Denial. You will deny me. Deny means not even recognizing our relationship, which would have been a big slap in the face for a guy who claimed to be a disciple for three years to say, discipleship, this immersive relationship where you leave everything and you follow me, the master, you will not even recognize me. You won't even claim a connection. And love is the biggest glue showing human connection. He's like, you will disown me. And he says it twice to get his attention. Truly, truly, 
You're going to not recognize me over and over and over. And why the rooster? I know a lot of us, I know Daryl's got roosters, but most of you don't have a rooster. In that culture, why a rooster? Stories always have a someone. A good story always has a somewhere. But Jesus is saying in this story, there's a some when. It's dark. You're making some big love claims here, Peter. But a rooster breaks into the dawn, right? You know when the rooster is crowing, now the lights come. He's saying, Peter, let me just tell you what's really going to happen. It's already dark. Before the light occurs three times, you will say you don't even know me. Can you imagine? And if we look ahead, this did come true. John 18, 17, a servant girl at the door says to Peter when Jesus is taken into the courtyard, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And what did he say? I am not. He did it again and again. But in Luke 22, Jesus makes a claim. He tenderly says Simon's name twice. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. He might sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Oh, you will deny me. You will claim you love me, but I have prayed for you. As a vulnerable child, I have prayed for you. Jesus is saying, Peter, and he's saying to many of us today, I know you down to the dark depths, and I'm going to love you to the heights. You can love others, Peter, and you will love others, but it has to be because I first loved you. When you see, Peter, the glory of my death on the cross, you will then be governed by my grace, and you'll bear my manner, and you will have my distinguishing mark. I will outlove you, Peter, and it will prepare you to outlove others. Peter did decide that he would put more trust in the love of Jesus rather than the love that he had for Jesus. What about you today? What about you today? None of you walked in here not wanting to be loving people. That is not the good news that is proclaimed today. The good news is you have been outloved by Jesus, and now it's time to outlove the hardest people in your life. I end with a story that's always convicted me. It's a story many of you have probably heard. It's a story about an old man. He got up early one morning, and he's meditating on love, and he's sitting under a tree, and there's this stream going by, and he, he kind of is this moment of, I just love the world, and he looks at me, and he's a scorpion. And that scorpion is drowning. And he decides, I got to love that dirty old scorpion. And he goes out on a tree branch and he grabs that scorpion and lifts it up. And that scorpion does what? The nature of a scorpion is going to sting you. If you try to love somebody, in fact, try to love the most lovable person in your life, they're going to let you down this week. They're going to sting you. Back to the story. He gets stung. And he kind of loses his grip, and the venom of that scorpion enters into him. But he grabs that scorpion again. It stings him again. By the way, if you're going to love real people like me, you're going to get hurt over and over. It's not a one and done. A passerby says, hey, hey, what are you doing? 
Why are you wasting time with such a vile creature that keeps hurting you and stinging you? This could take your life. And the man looks at the passerby and he says, listen, looks him in the eye. He says, I know the nature of that scorpion is to sting and hurt me, but that does not remove my nature, which is to outlove and to save the unlovable. This is the good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we weren't up in that room that night. We didn't have our feet washed. But we've been raised in a culture that everybody wants to love. There's even business books out there. Love's a strategy. Everybody wants to grab this and do it. But what we heard today, Lord, is that we're supposed to outlove other people that are hard to love. Glory. We come to church, God, because we want to see something so beautiful. Is it true that if we go into your deepest chamber of your heart, we will find love? We find Christ. Father, thank you for sending Jesus Christ who would die. Would you change us so that we would be loving people and start with the people in this room that we would learn to get to know them and love them. Lord, be with a, a marriage right now. Be with a, a grandmother or a grandfather who has a difficult grandchild. Be with a single person in the room who's just mad and angry at somebody. Would you help us to say the words, I'm sorry, I forgive you? Would you, Lord, make us qualitatively different for your glory? In Christ's name we pray, amen.